Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we talk to historian Brian Hanley about The Lost Revolution, the story of the official IRA and the Workers' Party, the book which he co-authored with Scott Miller, published in 2010. Thanks to everyone who has been listening to the podcast. Please do subscribe if you haven't done so already, and we'd welcome your feedback. You can visit the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. If you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us via the website, uh, send us an email to contact at leftarchive.ie, or find us on Twitter at ieleftarchive. Thanks again to Brian for talking to us, and thank you for listening. Brian, thanks very much for joining us. No um, problem. Great to be great to be on. To get us started, maybe you can let us know what brought you and Scott Miller to write the Lost Revolution. Well, it was Scott Miller brought me to write it. Um, I had uh, I'm a historian, and I was only kind of starting off in the early two thousands, and I'd written a book about the IRA in the twenties and thirties based on the Moss Toomey archives, which retrospect could have been a lot better. But anyway, that had been published, and I knew Scott. Anyway, from from a good while before, we used to bump into each other occasionally. And in 2004, Scott got in touch with me and said, why is there no book on the official IRA? Why is there no book on the Workers' Party and so on? And I said, well, you know, they've been written about in other books, but I mean, I think it would be quite difficult to do one because I thought people wouldn't speak to you. And also there'd be very little, with my historian's hat on, there'd be very little sources. You know, they wouldn't be outside of newspapers. What would you use? And Scott really um you know didn't accept that idea he had the dynamism and and the energy really um to say no i'm just going to go to the workers party and ask them uh will they talk to us and then we just go around asking people and because he was a journalist and he had the the neck to do it he started doing that now we were very lucky at the start and i don't think we'd be able to do the book now um partially because the whole disaster of boston college has mean meant that a lot of people involved yeah. mm-hmm. with the northern and the stuff wouldn't want to talk to researchers and certainly wouldn't want to be taped or 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 even have written notes of what they were saying. Um, and secondly, even the book trade, I think, would be reluctant to publish such a, a big book about a left-wing Irish political movement. And we can come back to how, how we managed to get away with having such a big book, because people mightn't realise publishers hate big books. They mm. think people don't buy them. Um, they want you to write pretty short books if possible and also books that that don't have big ideas in them sometimes so we were lucky mm-hmm. but we were also lucky because Scott was a friend of, of Gerald O'Leary and Scott was a, a, a one of his best friends was Dermot O'Leary Ger's son who died tragically uh, in Glasgow in, in 1998 yeah. and Ger had been involved in the Republican movement in the 60s he'd been in the IRA in Dublin and Ger had, had supported the officials was later on in the Communist Party but Ger was one of them unique individuals that he, he'd maintained friendships across almost all the different boundaries and factions and he knew loads of people so Ger was one of the first people we interviewed um it was a very different interview than a lot of the ones <laughs> did, but but Ger also had like a long list of names and a lot of people he knew and I think Ger was the intro to Sean Garland um and also to Mick Ryan and people and also to a whole range of other people uh, as well and it started to snowball and I was genuinely surprised that um, a lot of people said, yeah, I will talk to you. Now, some people refused and some people later on came back and said, I should have spoken to you, but I didn't know what you were at. Some people were suspicious. Um, I remember being accused of being a free state agent in a, in a house in 
Ballymacrorty in Derry, for example, which wasn't a great experience. But, um, but you know, generally people were pretty friendly. And of course, what we found was that um, for people involved in either the official Republican movement or the Workers' Party and so on, there was a sense that their story hadn't been told. Mm-hmm. or that it had been completely distorted, that they were a caricature. And I think, you know, to use the term that everybody knows, the stickies are a caricature um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. What do people know about them? Oh, in the 1960s, these Marxists took over the Republican movement. They didn't believe in defending nationalists because they loved unionists. Mm-hmm. And then they took over RTE and so on. Now, that's crude. But to be honest, I hear it all the time. And, and yeah. Dermot Ferder had a review of Mary McAleese's book a few weeks ago, where he talked about the stickies in RTE. Now, a lot of people wouldn't have a clue what he meant. But the fact is, he yeah. used shorthand because there'd be enough people reading it who would know what he meant. So yeah. the story was much more complicated than that and multi-layered than that. We began to find that out very quickly when you had people as diverse as Tony Gregory, you know, who, who agreed to talk to us, who'd yeah. been involved in, in the, the IRA in Dublin and then in official Sinn Féin mm. and then briefly in the IRSP mm. and a whole range of others. And there were people we didn't get to and there was people we were dis- disappointed not to get to. And we could have, of course, done more, but it really did start to snowball. And, and even somebody like Sean Garland, who, I found really frustrating when we interviewed him initially, you really gave us the party line and it wasn't even the party line. It was just that essentially he was very reflective about the 1950s and his youth. Mm. And then that just stopped. And then it just became the story mm. yeah. as he told it. And, um, and I thought it was like that. This is, this guy is not telling us anything that we don't really know already. Mm. But the point was because he agreed to speak to us and then McGilla we spoke to Tomas McGillah as well, who was frustrating in a different way, but, but um, that other people in the Workers' Party agreed. And then the Workers' Party gave us access to their, um, this, the material they had in their offices. Now, mm. when I think back on it, firstly, I hope that they do ultimately give that to an archive at some mm. point, because they have material going back to the 1940s. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they had all the 1960s art, Corley Minutes and so on, and a huge amount of like correspondence, common reports, membership lists, all these things. Um, and I remember going into, I think it was Gardner Place or else it was Hill Street. They might have moved around the corner about 2005. And um, I think it was Porig Mannion or Tony Epps said, oh, here's, you can work away there and you can use the photocopier. You know, and I was like, <laughs> Jesus, can I really photocopy this stuff? Because I was finding stuff that wasn't, I mean, I wasn't finding um, illegal material yeah. or anything like that, but there was stuff that was not, um, didn't reflect well Mm. you know, on their own history and mm. didn't reflect well on, 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 you know, it was a lot of internal, mm. um, um, wrangling. you know, wrangling, yeah, to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> and I remember Garland came in and I said, is it okay for me to go through these boxes? And he said, we've no secrets here, Brian. And I just thought it was a classic line because, you know, <laughs> you know, there are secrets, but they're somewhere else. Now, the fact was, there were a lot of those documents which weren't particularly, I think, um, complementary to the Workers' mm. Party, but they let us they let us have access to a lot of that material. Um, and there was lots of, it was all kinds of material there and it wasn't organized in any way, you know, mm. it was just thrown together. It was great. They'd kept it. And mm. so we, uh, from a historian's point of view, there were sources that hadn't been used before. And plus the general literature, the newspapers and so on hadn't really been, you know, yeah. I mean, I, uh, the, the official story in inverted commas was in May, 1972, the official IRA declared a ceasefire and that was that. Mm. And there was a few feuds thereafter, but really that was the end of that story. Now, 
you just go through the national press, you know, and up till 1976, the official IRA are still claiming attacks on the British Army. Yeah. So that was in the national press. But people hadn't bothered looking at it, and obviously for political reasons also, people didn't want to, to draw attention to it. In the United Irishman, there's photographs of official IRA volunteers with Armalites, with M1 machine guns and so on, in 1975. Now again, yeah. lots of people involved in the Workers' Party who, who would have said, well, the official IRA went away in 1972, and, 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 and so on. So there was a story there which was in public view, hmm. but which hadn't been um, kind of, Examined. And I think part of that was that we all read history backwards and we're all informed by our personal experiences. And there was a lot of people who hated the stickies. Mm. And sometimes people hated them for good reasons, but a lot of time people hated them for, for ridiculous reasons and had this caricature in their heads. So they didn't bother trying to look at the history of it because they had in their own minds made up, you know, what mm. they knew what this story was about. Scott, I think it's fair to say, would have been quite sympathetic to the worldview of the Workers' Party in the broadest sense in 2004. Um, I wouldn't have been. I didn't like them. Um, my political background was not sympathetic towards the Eastern Bloc. I was not sympathetic towards the Workers' Party's view on the North. And any experiences I'd had with them, and there weren't many, but it had been fairly negative, you know, no big deal, but, it, you know, I didn't like them. Um, and then as you begin to write the book, and it's funny because an eminent political scientist who's written a lot on Northern Ireland, you know, kind of sneeringly described it as a very sympathetic work on the Workers' Party. Now, the point was, right. I was writing generally about people, or we were writing generally about people who, who had set out to change Ireland in the 1960s, and I think to change it for, for the better. Mm. And whatever my own views, I think you do have to have some empathy. Mm for people in progressive movements and kind of look at where they were from and what shaped them. So as I got to speak to people and as people who I'd never met before brought me into their homes, gave me sandwiches and tea, came down from the attic with a load of old local newsletters from Bray in the 70s or whatever and said, here, look, I haven't looked at these in years. And we also found, I mean, I think that a lot of the leadership people, people like Desi O'Hagan and Sean Garland and Tomás McGillett in a different way, mm. gave us a party line, which is not surprising. Um, lots of other people were very open with us, were very reflective on their own pasts and what had gone on, were proud of some things, but were upset by others. Um, I don't want to go into too many names because yeah. so many people helped us that it'd be like, yeah. well, you didn't, you never thank this person, or you, you thank that person. I would say, again, Gerard was very helpful. Um, Porig Gates was, was very helpful. I'd have a lot of rows with Porig on historic, historical matters, but I found him very, very open and, and genuine in terms of talking about his background from the 60s in Britain in Clan Nahairn and, and how mm. he later came to Ireland. Um, a man called Seamus Murphy, originally from Kildare, um, was in Bray in later years. He, uh, he was a Republican prisoner in the 50s in, in Wakefield and he was in prison with Goulding and Klaus Fuchs and, and right. so on. Yeah. And uh, Seamus probably would have been more sympathetic to the provisionals, but again was one of these people who retained mm. friendships across boundaries. Seamus just gave me, I'd met him at a border campaign thing and, and he just invited me out to his house and, and him and his wife Betty. And he gave me all this visual material because Seamus made home movies 
and he gave me all these photographs of Bodenstown and so on. And he gave me a little home movie of a protest in Bray featuring Seamus Costello and so on in the late 60s, anti-Vietnam War marches in Dublin. But Bodenstown from 1969, pre-split, and mm. then the official Bodenstown from 1970. Mm. Now that turned up on YouTube a few years later and I had yeah. to apologise profusely to Seamus because he, he didn't give permission for that. And yeah. of course, we'd given people DVDs. Everybody's like, I'm in that, I want to see it. And then of course it ends up you know, but there's, in the 1969 one, you can see the young Jerry Adams, you can see uh, Joe McCann, there's a load of people. Rose Curry, who was killed in 1971 in Belfast, is, is there in the Fianna. Um In the 1971, you can see Mick O'Reardon and the CPI contingent, you see the young socialists. Again, you see Joe McCann and, and others from Belfast as well. So it's a really interesting piece of little historical footage. And Seamus didn't have to give us that. You know? yeah, I mean, he, he, he didn't, you know, and he was just, people like that were extraordinarily generous. And it kind of, again, give you um, a kind of insight into how, despite all the terrible things that happen, you know, that mm. there's people who, who become involved in politics because they genuinely do want to change things. And, and this, you know, these comradeships and so on didn't, kind of um shapes people for life how long did that process take just by the way before we get into the history of it in a sense how long did it take from start to finish to get the book together um five years i think we started in 2004 and the book came out in 2009 yeah so it was about five years and and you know the fact there was two of us on it helped and it also obviously then hindered because what way we do it and, and the reason of course we ended up getting a um published by Penguin Ireland. Mm. We were lucky because they were a big, um, big company. And they'd approached me over a, a completely unrelated thing. <laughs> um, and and I'd said to Brendan Barrington, well, I'm not doing that at the moment, but myself and a friend of mine are writing about the official IRA. And he said, oh, really? And they would have said no way to a book that was over 600 pages long, but we gave it to them in installments. So by the time they got to the end, they couldn't really demand major cuts because it just wouldn't make no sense yeah. so to be fair to brendan barrington he's a very good editor mm. and he was getting chapters over a few years so he was <laughs> saying right okay he couldn't see where either you know it'd be too brutal a process to yeah. to make major cuts we wouldn't get away with that now um yeah. i mean you know you're generally told ninety thousand words is what you're getting if you're lucky with a, yeah. a commercial publisher but um we would, I'd write a chapter and Scott would write a chapter and then we'd swap them over and try and go over and try and either add to them or we would often fall out and not talk to each other for, for days or longer. <laughs> um, we did have a lot of, of uh, what's the creative disagreements. Um, and, and, you know, we, it was, it was a, a fraught process in many ways, but it also was very, I mean, we spent a lot of time traveling around um, meeting people and chatting to people and, yeah. and arguing about stuff that neither of us were involved in and could do nothing about, but that's the, um, nature, of the, exercise. the nature of the exercise, yeah. The one thing just, again, on the tone of it, 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 to be honest, it's quite neutral and dispassionate. I always thought, like, in fact, it's almost frustratingly so at the very end because you're kind of getting to the end and it's, it, it doesn't have a, I don't want to say it's not a clear conclusion because it makes perfect sense where it ends and how it ends, but it's sort of, it does. It does seem to strive for a sort of neutrality. I think, partly, I suppose, because neither me or Scott would have agreed on a mm. on a on a conclusion. Also, it wasn't an analytical book. We were telling the story because um, it became kind of clear that people didn't really know the story. They knew bits of it, 
Mm. Um, I suppose I was conscious of the fact that, yeah, it, it was meant it was meant for a general audience. It wasn't written for academics and it wasn't also written just for political activists or people mm. who've been, it wasn't just written for, for ex-Workers' Party members. It was written mm. for somebody who could pick up the book and get a sense of a story of, of this, this mm. movement. Um, and, you know, there are things we probably could have done better. And, and, and I think, you know, in the review and on Fublot, uh, Michal McDonagh has said, in, you know, when we looked at Belfast in 1969, we should have talked to more of the other side, the other side being meaning the people who became the originals. Mm. And, you know, that's fair enough. But, we, we, but the trouble was most studies of the conflict, certainly if they're coming from a Republican point of view, implicitly just say the provisionals emerged because X, Y and Z happened. Um, yeah. And we kind of just found that it was more complicated than that. I mean, mm. in my view, an awful lot of the people who were involved in defending nationalist areas in August 1969, including people who were in St. Congal School, firing on loyalists who were in Bombay Street trying to stop the loyalists, they all sided with the officials when the split happened. Now, that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. They think, no, no, but surely the officials didn't even agree with defence. And that mm. just doesn't make, you know, that's not what happened in Belfast. Mm. You know, Lee McMillan and Jim Sullivan, Joe McCann and, and, and other people um, defended nationalist areas in 1969. Right. That's what they did. And retrospectively, in Ireland, you often find that that two opposing sides can accept the same myth. Mm. So the provisional is obviously part of their foundational. And, and, and by myth, I don't mean this isn't true, but it's mm. their kind of, you know, idea. Mm. Out of the ashes arose the provisionals. The guns weren't there. Why weren't they there? All oh, these Marxists in Dublin didn't believe in defending Catholics. and They wouldn't give them to anybody and so on. Um, by the 1980s, the Workers' Party implicitly accept that. Of course, they weren't there. So we didn't want guns. Cahill wanted to take the gun out of Irish politics. And yeah. we wanted to unite Protestant Catholic workers. Well, you know, it was a lot more messy than that. And it was yeah. a lot more mixed up than that. And the IRA um, and, uh, you know, again, I, I, I hate it when I see, and I understand why people do it because they need a shorthand when they say, the IRA in the late 60s was Marxist and then there was a split and they were traditional. Well, well basically, I don't know how many Marxists there were in the IRA in the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, Sean Garland probably was a Marxist. Um, yeah. Certainly a lot of the leadership weren't and a lot of the, the local people who, who sided with the Fields were not Marxists. Mm. Um, mm. They were left Republicans or they were mainstream Republicans who agreed with the leadership. And, mm. and again, the provisionals are, are as diverse as well. Yeah. And, and people are people like Grodo Fuelon is doing his book on the, the provisionals in the South. I think, you know, there's a very the Republican movement is always a coalition and there's always all these other factors with local loyalties history and so on that come into the reason why people take the sides they do so but the thing was that i've written since then in SARE and in irish historical studies and stuff about the ira in the 60s and mm -hmm. i've tried to use the kind of limited amount of of primary material from the ira itself that we've got um but the lost revolution wasn't the place to do that the lost yeah. revolution was to just try and tell the story say what happened and also then try and say it from the point of view of the people who were there mm. and try and maybe signal that obviously there's another side to this. There's another story to this, but this yeah. is, you know, the way that what was happening. And it was difficult because there's lots happening in Irish society at the time. Mm. And most people in Ireland aren't actually involved in <laughs> politics and they aren't involved in the official IRA. So, you know, when you write a book about them, it's all about them. But of course, like, you know, yeah. we were mm. doing lots of other stuff too. They're marginal so, in a sense. They can be. Yeah. And again, yeah. You know, if you write a big, massive history of them, you're obviously got to argue that they're of some importance. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, 
people are getting on with their lives even in the in the midst of the horror in the north people are getting on with their lives and they're not all in the stickies yeah. or the provos or the uvf or the uda and all the rest of it. So that's sure. another part of the story too so in a way like it's almost it's it's to even try to frame all of the say the 60s and the late 60s in the context of stalinism or reformism is almost missing the point because yeah it's, like, i really think so there's just it's not actually a factor in that sense everybody's a bit of everything almost in a way I mean, or, or Sean Garland, they? who people would caricature as this, you know... Uh, super Stalinist. Super Stalinist, North Korea and all the rest of it. Mm. We all read history backwards. And look, if, if someone meets me today and, and they decide I'm a bollocks, it's no point you saying to them, well, he was really, Hanley was really nice 30 years ago. Right. Um, you know, they'll say, well, I don't care because he's a bollocks now. <laughs> um, but the point is, you have to look at, you know, in, 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 in 1972... Sean Garland was regarded by people like Owen Harris and so on as a Trotskyist mm. because he was very interested in stuff that people like Jerry Foley were writing. And I think people who knew him say that Garland, as he became interested in the left, he just devoured all these ideas and he was interested in what was going on. He was interested in Guevara and he was mm. interested in what was happening there. I mean, we were right near the end. We were given some internal IRA material and it was too late to use it. I mean, we, we used a bit, we got a, couple of ontoglocks and we also got the minutes of a meeting in 1967 in Tipperary which is a reorganization meeting um, and I've written about them since in journals but we could only use a tiny bit because the, the book was essentially typeset um, and they don't let you you know yeah. do it but in those you see like the 1967 meeting is where they decide they're going to call themselves socialists for the first time Right. And it's really like such a diverse and eclectic, like Tomás McGillis says, our socialism should be based on the teaching of the popes in recent times. You know, yeah. when people say 20 years after Tomás, Tomás had adopted the ideas of Marx. And this is just not the way it was. And yeah. um, they're all agreed on armed struggle. They're all yeah. agreed on the need to get guns and money. You know, yeah. this is, this is, you know, um, the idea that Cahal Gooling was taking the gun out of Irish politics is a nonsense. He was not going to maybe use the gun like it had been used in the border campaign, but they were going to use it for something. And in Antarctica as well, you can see them talking about like, you can't impose socialism from the outside. Look at Hungary. The mm. people don't want it. It has to be an Irish socialism and they're talking about mellows and they're talking about all that. And in the 60s, all that stuff has been rediscovered. I mean, yeah. Greaves' book, Desmond Greaves' book on Connolly comes out in 1961. And for a lot of people, that's the first time they're reading about Connolly being a Marxist. Mm. Padre O'Donnell's book on the Civil War, There'll Be Another Day, comes out, I think, about 1963. And again, the Republican Congress stuff is being rediscovered mm. as well. And, and, and so all this stuff is, is, is in the air. And I think mm. just to see this as uh, Goulding was in prison and he was essentially brainwashed by this genius, this German spy, Klaus yeah. Fuchs. And Seamus Murphy said to me that Klaus Fuchs, you know, never tried to convince anybody of anything. He barely spoke to anybody, you know. But I mean, again, of course, I'm sure people did talk to him. I mean, they, Seamus Murphy said they were sharing books about Yugoslavia and stuff like that. And they were interested in all these yes. other things. Cuba is a big example because the Cuban revolution, I mean, Castro yeah. didn't tell the world he was a Marxist until about 1962. That's right, yeah. He didn't come to power as a Marxist. Yeah. He later announced it when, yeah. the, you know, when he realized the Americans were going to try and crush him, you know. <laughs> So there's there's a lot going on, and I think that the positions that people take in later years, and they honestly take them, aren't necessarily a guide to what they were doing in the 60s or what they were doing in the, the early 70s either. And then there's all this, of course, is then transformed by the North, and it's transformed by things like the arms crisis and so on, which is back in the, the news. And 
by the mythologies that all the organizations develop about why we exist and why we're here. And there's always a grain of truth in all those retellings, you know, but I suppose we wanted to say something, something a bit new. I mean, again, uh, Andres Okosik, who, who uh, people might know, um, mm. Andres had, had said to me years before, before I was doing this mm. Workers' Party stuff, he said, you know the way that I ran away was painted all over the walls in Belfast in 1969? I said, yeah. And he said, have you ever seen a picture of that? And I, and I said, no, I haven't, to be honest. And then when we started doing this book and I was talking to people in Belfast, I mean, people were saying like, how could that have been painted on a wall in West Belfast when the only people at the barricades were people in the IRA and everybody knew the IRA were there and the IRA had got guns by the, you know, a few days later. Mm. And do you think someone's going to go out and write, I ran away on a wall in that context? Mm. I mean, you know, and, and then you've got Tim Pat Coogan's books where he argues that Catholics went out and wrote Irish ran away. Now, why would a nationalist in West Belfast write Irish ran away on a wall? But, and there's photographs of walls and they all say, are you CSS? Mm. This is free Belfast, up mm. the IRA, join the IRA. So this, I suppose, was one mythology that we wanted to try and challenge a little bit. And we kind of thought I kind of got to the bottom of where it comes from. In 1920, British soldiers down in Kerry wrote IRA equal Irish ran away on walls. You know, oh, so there, really? okay. this has existed. Yeah. And as someone said, if anyone painted that, it was be specials or somebody. You know, right. uh, yeah. because it fits perfectly into what loyalists think yeah. happened. Yeah. But by 1970, you know, it certainly became an explanation and people mm. genuinely believe it. And once people believe it, you know, um, it's, it's, it's part. So again, we were telling the story, but we wanted to say, maybe put a few things out there that, that hadn't really been, mm. you know, examined. Similarly with the whole thing about the split. Now, I don't believe Fianna Fáil caused, caused the split. And yeah. The arms trial and all that's another yeah. day's work. I don't believe Sean McStephen was, was a, a guard agent. I think that's rubbish, you know. Right. Um, but in March and June 1969, Peter Berry of the Department of Justice gave two long memoranda on the IRA to government ministers. Mm. And in that, it's an exhaustive detailing of what the IRA have been doing, their intervention in strikes and land disputes, their lack of money, their robbery of... of uh, secure a caravan at Dublin Airport because they need money. Their attempts to get support from abroad, which I should come back to too. Um, mm. And in that, he argues that, and Berry had been around since the late 20s. I mean, Peter Berry wrote really interesting documents, which are in the Sean McEntee papers about the Republican movement in the 30s. So, mm. I mean, he'd been, he'd been through 40 years of this stuff as, as a government official. And he says, there's divisions within the IRA about this left-wing stuff. And it would be good if the government and perhaps the church pushed these differences and advertised them in order to cause a split. And as he says, it would have the effect with the Republican Congress as with the, of dividing the movement. So the idea that a split in the IRA would be good is mm. out there for people in the government and the civil service. Now, Barry isn't saying, and we'll set up a great new IRA, you know, yes. that'll be, you know, he's not saying that. He's not saying anything about the North, mm. but he's saying there's divisions in the IRA over policy, and it would be a good thing if we pushed those divisions and we made them known. Um, in early August, Jack Lynch, Taoiseach uh, meets senior media people and people from RTE, and he says, you're giving too much publicity to the IRA, should stop calling them the IRA. Since the 1940s, the government's had a policy of referring to them as the illegal organisation. Mm. You need to go back to that. Your publicity for the IRA is influencing what he says are immature minds. Right. 
they've begun a campaign against foreign um, industrialists and landlords. They're going to start against Irish ones as well. We're going to bring in new laws to deal with them soon, but we'd like you to help. So please, you know, stop doing that. Now that's, you know, very interesting that Jack Lynch thought he could talk to newspaper editors and they wouldn't, you know, all go off and write stories about it, you know, (laughs) but also that he's saying to them, look, the IRA are becoming a pain. We're going to deal with them and we need your help doing that. Now, then the NORP blows up and there's nothing. They can't bring in these new laws because there's a wave of of solidarity with nationalists in the North and and the IRA are are being seen by lots of people as as, as people who are going to be helpful. So it takes another while before they do attempt to do that. So I think the story of the 60s is more complicated. The the one thought that comes to my mind when you're saying all of that is another aspect of the IRA ran away is it forgets like how many people are, you know, central to the provisional movement were actually in Sinn Féin and the IRA pre-split, you know. So it was it was never a simple, you know, it yeah, became a, yeah, a, a Marxist organisation or something like that, which it didn't. Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. because these people stuck by almost to the bitter end, I mean, you know, you read some of the notes and you're going, how did yeah, they well, actually countenance that? There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, again, people naturally memories are fallible and, and mm. splits and divisions and it became extremely bitter. Mm. In 1970, when at the Ardesh, when Sinn Féin splits, mm. Tomás Megilla is saying to the papers that, you know, there's a lot of people who've left who, who just, who've agreed with all our policies, but they just genuinely think abstentionism is the heart of republicanism, you know? Yeah. And he doesn't call them right-wingers or anything like that, you know? He says they have been involved in social agitation. And there's a lot of people who try to, at local level, Certainly in some parts of the country, the split doesn't really happen until after internment, you know, yeah. um, or it doesn't happen until 1972. And again, I saw stuff which, again, was too late to use it, but interesting in, in the, uh, I mean, one big bloody dividing line is obviously the, what the officials call the pogrom, which is the mm. 1975 feud with mm. the provost, which the Irish Times called the worst bloodletting between Republicans since the Civil War, which gives you some idea how big it was. Mm. It had a profound effect on the officials and their thinking. Uh, not just in Belfast, but it had a knock-on effect throughout Ireland. Um, but I saw some some analysis of that from prison um, because the prisoners were lucky to be out of it, but they were in the same, they were in Lankesh. And and the Belfast provisionals in Lankesh were celebrating this and seeing it as like, we're going to finish you lot off once and for all because there was this deep hatred between the two sides. Mm. But what they called the countrymen, the Tyrone and Armagh and all the other provisionals thought it was utterly ridiculous. They could not understand as far as they were concerned. It made them look, it's just gang warfare. We cannot understand why you can't just Definitely. coexist and do your own thing. Because while there were feuds, certainly in Newry and in Straban and, and so on, in the more rural areas, the organisations didn't come into conflict like that. And mm-hmm. they even, again, a, a person who'd been a provisional in Tyrone would have said, you know, up to 73, they'd have been swapping arms and ammunition, joint operations and stuff like that. So it's a different story in different places, but Belfast becomes crucial and Belfast becomes very bitter. And again, it's, it's a small place and people who went to school together, people who went to the same dances, people who, people who went out with members of each other's families end up trying to kill each other. And, and it's, it's a tragic story. Mm. In terms of you mentioned abstention. In a way, it's moving it on to the official Sinn Féin side of things. Official Sinn Féin in the first, say, three years of existence, and as you say, it seems to change radically around 75, 76, under the pressure of the feuds and various other aspects. But do you think it's fair to say that in that first three-year period, um, 
there was sort of then a retrospective thing. Well, we are actually different to the other guys. We're different to the provisionals. And there was a sort of trying to kind of carve out a space. Yeah, I think there's a rapid move to the left in some ways, which is partly, which might have happened anyway, but it would have been a lot slower, Mm. you know. And therefore, the people who are very impatient with, with the inverted commas, traditionalists and so on, they're gone. The traditionalists are gone, largely so, you know, they're gone. So who cares? I'm putting up my poster Stalin now, you know, um, you know, I mean, and, and you do have that, you have certainly in Dublin. And again, you see Dublin is different to Cork or Waterford or Belfast. Um, you have a group who, who I'm not using the term as, as a term of abuse. They describe themselves as Stalinists. Um, Helena Sheehan has written again about this. She's very interested in, in her memoir. I think it's very good. And Helena again helped us, but um, as they don't know more a coup. But there would have been a group who saw themselves as we are Marxist-Leninists, we are in fact Stalinists. There'd have been another group who would have said we're, we're left-wing Republicans. Another yeah. group who were influenced by the young socialists who were Trotskyists, yeah. uh, people who wouldn't have called themselves anything. People who from 68 onwards in the housing campaigns and so on were, were really starting that um, community activism um, and, and seeing the that the focus of the party should be on that. And what I suppose what the officials did realise early on, and, and we can uh, have an argument about how important the North is and why or why not you should care about it. But in 1973, in the general election, um, officials should fain stand for the first time in a general election as non-abstentionists. They don't do very well. I think Joe Sherlock gets the best vote overall. Um, and in the aftermath of that, what they report back is that you know the association with the official ira and violence is a vote loser in the south you know um even though there was a ceasefire they were still doing stuff and everybody knew they were still Mm. doing stuff so you know secondly um northern canvassers were counterproductive um you know that people from the north knocking on your door sometimes people didn't like it and that reflects of course how the south was beginning to recoil Mm. which which was became the next focus for me later on in terms of what I wanted to look at. Mm. Now, ironically, I think that provisional, I, I don't call them provisional Sinn Féin now, but just to differentiate them, mm. in the 1990s, Sinn Féin in Dublin, I think, got reports that people didn't like Northerners knocking on their doors, you know, that it was better to use Dublin canvassers. And that reflects something about partition and, and, and all the rest of it as well. So I think the officials realised that, yeah, the Southern enthusiasm for fighting in the North was going, Mm. And they were affected by that because they were still the official Republican movement. Mm. Um, so it was that, there would be a core of people who'd support you because of the North, but there'd be a lot more who, who wouldn't. Mm. Um, also then, there's all these reports about, like, we're, we're talking about being involved in housing. We're talking about being involved in unions. We're do- talking about all those things in the United Irishman. We're not really doing them, you know, because so much of our focus is on the North, you know. So you begin to see this pulling away then, and it's a hard balance to... You know, and at the same time as that, they've probably got a thousand members in Belfast. So how do you not talk about the North? How do you not when this is going to every day, there's going to be reports coming back of, you know, little clashes that could develop into feuds, demands from people for retaliation against the British Army, all fundraising, all these things. So, you know, you've got all these people in Dublin saying, oh, we've got to just concentrate on, on housing in Finglas. OK, we'll do that. And then, yeah, I'm after getting a call from Belfast, you know, things are, you know, so you've got these tensions, which in an armed struggle situation, I think are very hard to resolve. And I think that modern Sinn Féin have found that too. I mean, in my view, 
modern Sinn Féin's success is a product of the peace process. Mm. You know, that once the North starts to calm down and the war was over, it became far easier to become a, a political yeah. force in the South, you know. Yeah. And obviously now there's a core of people who would always support you, who would be attracted to you because of the North. Mm. But the officials begin to find out early on that, you know, they've got to branch out into other things. But, um, but they seem to push further left quicker than you'd almost expect even under that context or do you think that was already baked into the overall cake so to speak? i don't know because i suppose there's so many divergent groups and, yeah. and i haven't mentioned you know seamus costello and, mm. and all the arguments that he's had about in in, in late 72 is two official ira conventions and all the political leadership are there so you know we're talking about both mm. And, and Garland and Costello had put a joint document um, together about the centrality of the national question and about how the movement would lose all its impetus in the North unless it was prepared to, to um, you know, continue to maintain the importance of the national question was. And that actually wins at the convention. Um, and then it's just completely jettisoned. And that's a big, you know... Sean Garland and, and Tomás McGill and Des O'Hagan go to Moscow in 1973 and people always say that, that Sean Garland then really began to embrace Soviet mm. um, socialism and someone, I think, I can't remember who said to us, you know, Sean saw the system working and it just became so obvious that this is where we were going to get support from and where we were going to get, you know, and maybe again there's a dose of pragmatism in that, you know, Mm. You can be as Trotskyist as you want, but there wasn't any Trotskyist armies in the world mm. or, you know, superpowers um, that they did want material aid, as Irish Republicans have always wanted from from abroad. But also then people like Des O'Hagan and others who were Soviet style Marxists, I suppose, um, they're becoming more prominent. And in Dublin, people like Owen Harris and Ono Moroku are becoming more prominent. And um some people have said, and I don't know how true this is, but um, there's a sense that sometimes people are overawed by intellectuals or people who know more than them. And some people resent it. I mean, you, everybody knows that sometimes people don't like people who are considered too clever for their own good. Yeah. But there's also then this sense that people like, certainly Carl Goulding, um, they lacked a bit of self-confidence. You know, they felt that, they needed guidance in terms of the big stuff, Marxism and things like that, and that they were over-impressed by whether it was Roy Johnson or... or mm. And I think Roy Johnson's role is massively overblown. But, right. but certainly, I mean, they're looking for ideas and they're looking for somebody who's got a, a theory that this can all be packaged into. Mm. And, you know, certainly the... the by the mid-70s, they're embracing Soviet-style Marxism. Haven't flirted with China and haven't flirted with Albania and haven't mm. obviously been interested in Cuba and been interested in Vietnam and, and other stuff like that as well. I should have mentioned that the, um, there's work done in Chinese archives and uh, I can't remember that. It did feature on the Cedar Loans. I can't mm. remember the, the person who's done it, but he came across, you know, Seamus Costello and Carl Goulding had approached the Chinese. Yeah in 1965 looking for aid now yeah. i mean the significance of that is that you can't do that if you're working for moscow yeah the chinese and russia are, are on the verge of war in the 60s mm. so this is this is how eclectic they were yeah. they were looking for you know that algeria was another place i think that they 
they thought about too. So you've got all this stuff going on globally. And um, I think the, the extent, I mean, you've interviewed Colin Brannock recently about mm. the Workers' Party in the 80s. Mm. And for me as an outsider, I'd always have seen the Workers' Party as this monolithic disciplined force mm. who were really, you know, all on the one page and they obviously all if the RDS said North Korea was great that's obviously what people in the Workers Party yeah. thought and then of course you discover that it's multi-layered and certainly once you make in terms of the WP mm. you reach ordinary people and mm. you, you gain a base in whether it's Kilbarrick or it's Finglas or whatever yeah. that stuff is just not what people are thinking about or talking about yeah. and it's really important I think in the mid 70s informing a lot of people but by the 1980s that's not what the average Workers' Party member and certainly not what their voters were interested in. And it then depends on what level you're at in the party or mm. what kind of faction you're with. So I suppose it was people like Colin said that to us. And the more people you spoke to, you, dis- you discovered that this was yeah. very true, that the party was always driven by factions, that it always had these little competing tendencies. Mm. But also then once it reached a certain level and began to have an impact on life, political life, in the Republic, even if mm. it was pretty limited, that that gives it a completely different thing. You know, I mean, someone said to me, inner city, Dublin inner city activists that like, yes, the Workers' Party were secular. Yes, or certainly our core activists had long abandoned the Catholic Church and were very mm. hostile to Catholic power. But he said some of the best women who worked for me in campaigns used to every Sunday dress the altar in their church out in East Wall and stuff that they were they were practicing Catholics and I don't know what they thought about you know so-called moral issues but they identified with the Workers Party because it was in their area it was on the ground and it took up issues that concerned them and I think any socialist party any serious left-wing party once it it goes beyond the status of a cult or you know or a small is going to have lots of people in it who think loads about loads of different you know so the caricature doesn't work yeah. And that's one of the reasons. They, a caricatured Stalinist party wouldn't have been able to to have that kind of electoral success, even if it was limited. Yeah. But in Irish terms in the 80s, um, it's significant. It's and I suppose, again, the people who are obsessed with RTE are obsessed with the secret stuff and so on, mm. which is important for the story. Mm. But it doesn't explain why De Rossa tops the poll. Mm. In, in, that, in his constituency yeah. in Ballymone Finglas yeah. um, it doesn't explain why you know people elect workers party councillors and, and so on mm. that's you know th- there's a whole other story there which became now retrospectively some people who were involved with the WP and so on said he had too much about Group B in the book he had too much about <laughs> all the secret stuff too much about North Korea yeah. you should have interviewed more people from Cork you should have interviewed more people from, from Waterford yeah. And there is a grain of truth in that, you know. Mm. But the problem was that you couldn't ignore the elephant in the room either, you know. You couldn't ignore the fact that while, you know, people are out canvassing in in, in the 1980s um, for a party that talks about class and Mm. and stands for peace in the North, Mm. members of that party are flying via Moscow to point Yang to engage yeah. in arms training. Yeah. I mean, it is, you, you can't ignore that side of the story or yeah. that yeah. they're asking Moscow for, for large amounts of money mm. or that there is 
still, you know, a, an official IRA in existent, existence. So all these parts of the story, I think, were important. And, and to put them all into one book was the, the was what we tried to do. Do you think that structure, that sort of structure and discipline, makes it easier for the party to be viewed as a as monolithic and and um, ideologically sort of fully formed? Yeah, I mean, I think. Obviously, if you only read party publications or if you read exposés about the party, you would think it was pretty, a pretty weird outfit, you know, um, mm-hmm. who are building site fraud and racketeering on the one hand, trips to North Korea on the other, um, and, you know, pontificating about nonviolence in the doll. And one of the reasons why I didn't like the Workers' Party was that I thought that you know, whatever your view about the provos and, and all the rest of it, there was more to what was happening in the North than, than simply saying the provos were bad, bad, bad. Mm, yeah. And, but then on the other hand, when you actually look at, at how the party functioned and operated, there was more of a diversity than you'd imagine. Mm. And a lot of people just, I mean, I think as somebody said, most Workers' Party voters didn't read the McGill exposés. Um, if there was stuff about them in the press, if they were party activists, mm. it'd be, well, the press hates us. They want to stop us, you know. Um, even though people who hate the Workers' Party believe the Workers' Party run the media, if you're in the Workers' Party, you think the media hates you, you yeah, know. People who hate the Workers' Party said, the Workers' Party ran today, tonight. People who are in the Workers' Party said, today, tonight, did a hatchet job on us in 1986. So again, you've got these yeah. different mm-hmm. narratives. And if you're an activist, you say, well, the state, the papers and so on are against us. They, they, they want to stop us because we're fighting for, for working people. Mm. If you're a voter, you're probably not paying a huge amount of attention to, to those exposes, unless it's something very direct, like somebody being shot dead in Dublin or something, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. And the Group B and the official IRA were, were really very careful after a period to try and keep most of their stuff in the North, which again is a very cynical t- thing to do as well. It's to say, look, people being arrested up there just doesn't cause waves in the South, really, mm. as long as it's not for, you know, um, people being killed, you know, robberies and stuff like that. People in the South, the, the North is such a, a crazy place in the 1970s and 1980s that nobody in the South is paying too much attention yeah. to people being jailed for a post office robbery. You know, so somebody might write about that. The Irish Times might have an article, people linked to Workers' Party, jailed or whatever. But again, lots of people are hmm. paying attention to that. So, and if it's raised in on Fublock, they say, well, of course, the provost hate us. They're our enemy, you know. Um, so, I think there's ways that you can work around all these um, um, potentially contradictory or potentially difficult areas. But to try and give a sense of the story, you had to understand why they were um, able to to continue along as they did. And also then, I suppose, they, why, why did people stick with them? You know, what did people um, see in the Workers' Party that was different? Because... Mm. Again, I, I, I was struck about 2008, 2009, before we'd finished the book, when the recession hit, that I think Joe Higgins had lost his seat in 2007. That's right. There was nobody in the doll who was responding to the initial recession by talking about class and things like that. And I was saying, you know, if the Workers' Party had been there, at least they'd be saying mm-hmm. something like that. And, and I think that was their attraction for, for a lot of people, that... I mean, Charles Hawley famously said that socialism and class conflict are alien to the nature of, of Irish people. I think the Workers' Party in the 1980s were saying class is central to, to Irish life, mm-hmm. you know. And, and because they weren't saying it abstractly, they were doing stuff on the ground as well. I think that, you know, that was key to their 
some of their success. Again, you know, you stand back and say limited success, but you know, we're we're talking about in terms of of the left. Presumably, for some people, they were essentially look. This is the only game in town in terms of a socialist party. Yeah. And, and I think what you found then, uh, one of their problems was, whereas in the early 70s, they'd still quite a national structure, mm-hmm. even in rural areas because of the Republican uh, movement. Over the years, the official Republican movement structure, say in Kerry or, or other places, began to wither mm-hmm. quite a bit. So they were more Dublin-centred and then Waterford and Cork and so on to a lesser extent than, mm-hmm. um, say, Sinn Féin in the modern era. You also then say in Limerick, um, there would have been a base for the Workers' Party because the Labour Party in Limerick were quite conservative and right wing. But that space was filled by Jim Kemmy, who'd broken away um, from, from Labour earlier. So where there was an oppositional force, sometimes they were a bit blocked as well. Um, but they did have councillors in, in small towns and they did have, have, have I mean, in the Udras, the Gwiltet elections in Donegal in the 80s, Seamus Rogers um, mm. was getting four or 5,000 votes, you know, and, and, Provisional Sinn Féin, in contrast, the Donegal were getting two or three hundred. So, I mean, that Donegal wouldn't be regarded as natural territory for the WP, but they still maintained. Um, uh, and I think O'Buttle, Seamus Rogers went with DL and was later in Labour and he was an elected representative right up till maybe 10 years ago, you yeah. know, he was, and he went right back to the 60s. I think it was elected in 67 mm. for Sinn Féin. So, so that's a part of the story too, which people might forget still existed, that there was a continuity with the earlier period mm-hmm. but there was lots of new stuff and though, though i was thinking the irony of what you're saying earlier about like you know in 2007 they're not being something like the wp and the dog but of course three or four tds had been wp tds yes, and, and, and they they'd stopped w, talking they about were, class they were ex-wp people all over the place you yeah, know that was yeah. the thing and, and i suppose that was again um when we were writing the book you know people were always saying to you sure your man was in them and you know this guy was in them and, and all mm-hmm. the rest and, and there was that whole the vast majority of Workers' Party members and people who canvass for them mm. are just ordinary people and they're not famous. Mm. But there is a kind of disproportionate number of people who've ended up either in politics, NGOs, the unions, obviously, yeah. the media to a lesser extent. And that, of course, then frames what people think a sticky is, you know. Yeah. Um, most members of the Workers' Party didn't become high court judges. Most members of the Workers' Party didn't become even leaders of trade unions, you know, mm. there's a lot more than that. But of course, they're part of the story too. And mm. how do you, I mean, I'm coming back to this idea of how we, we just kind of, we kept writing it and kept gathering more and more stuff <laughs> and, and falling out and um, making up. Um, and, and since I've stood back now and, and looked, been looking a lot more at the, the, revolutionary period of 100 years ago i found you know echoes of of debates which you know about for example i mean one of the big things that would annoy a lot of republicans today and they'll always say to us stickies stickies collaborated with the uvf stickies wanted to be friends with the loyalists while the loyalists murdered nationalists and and all the rest of it and Mm. i mean there's there's truth in in that but the official kind of view of the positivity of these loyalist organisations. A century ago, that's what Parik Pierce is saying about the UVF. You know, Parik Pierce says, Carson and his men will fight the British and we should be along, you know, if they do, we should be fight alongside the orange men, wow. you know. Um, yeah, yeah. When the Laren gun running takes place, Patrick McCartan, who's the, the top IRB man in Tyrone, he gives his car to the local UVF to help them 
with the gun running. There's this idea that even if these people say they hate us, if they're going up against the British and breaking the law, ultimately they'll come round. And you see that reflected in the early 70s and the stuff McGillah is saying and all the rest of it. Is this, this, it's, it's a strand within republicanism mm. which believes, you know, that fundamentally, yes, the unionists are Irish. Mm. They're fundamentally, you know, um, going to be on our side. Mm. And if they're fighting the British in whatever kind of way, maybe there's room for some kind of cooperation. And, and um, there's all kinds of echoes of it in history. Similarly, in, in, in 1914, 1920, the Republican leadership in, in, are very um, wary of getting involved in sectarian conflict in Belfast. They don't think it's a good idea. Mm. You know, it's, the fight should be with the British Army and all the rest. So, so these aren't new, you know, um, debates a lot of time. But by the 1970s, obviously, they're not, they're not abstract. And people are being killed on a regular basis and there's mm. a lot of horror going on. And um, again, I, I, I point out that in 1974, the, the UVF leadership were engaged in face-to-face -face talks with the provisional IRA leadership too. Um, yes, yeah. You know, um, at the same time, they're talking to the officials. So again, it's all, I mean, the, there's all kinds of stuff going on, which in retrospect looks, you know, um, like, you know, um, not great. Not great. No, or, or just seems like, how, could you, how could you do this? You know, yeah, um, yeah. but there's a longer story then. And I, I suppose one of the subterranean things we did look at and we mentioned, and it always strikes me as, as strange that you know, that more people, I suppose, weren't horrified by it. Um, I suppose some people knew already was that the cooperation between Group B in the 1980s with elements of the British security services and the loyalists as well. And then basically, I think the idea that um, as people who broke away in the 90s put it, the idea that our enemy's enemy is our friend mm. is fundamentally wrong. But of course, you can imagine why they adopted it. And also why then they'd be allowed to do a certain amount of things as long as they were seen as being on the, the right side. Now, um, presumably over decades to come, more stuff about that will come out. But I think it would, would have, it was pretty naive of the officials to think that they could be going to North Korea and going to Moscow and at the same time working to some degree with, with the British in the North and there wouldn't be espionage in the other direction. I mean, I think the British were, were were interested in all those international things too. So who knows what what was going on? Does that like obviously part of that came from the feuds and so on and so forth, which and and the memory of the feuds in the seventies. Um, and I guess like we haven't even touched on the IRSP and the INLA split, but mm -hmm. you know, do you think that was like was there a limitation to that within Group B in your reading? I mean, the book seems to imply there were even within Group B, there were limits which people at certain points felt they couldn't go beyond, you know, like even to that sort of, should we say, communication and working with um, the state, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there was, I mean, I think Sean Garland, who's obviously a central figure in a lot of ways, um, he did have this sense that, that there had to be political control and that the political organisation, even if it was a Bolshevik organisation, had to be in charge. Mm. And that, I think... People said it to us and you kind of didn't believe it at the start because it sounds like, you know, again, it's this thing of, oh, they wanted to get rid of the IRA. That he wasn't that concerned about IRA status, you know, um, that he he did like, you know, feel that this should always be subordinate. And I think there's there's stuff written in the late 70s where they're grappling with this and there's they're kind of saying basically, yes, we need guns to defend ourselves and we need guns to fundraise. But 
it's clear that in political terms, our association with violence has cost us. And that, again, was very much focused on political growth in the South. Mm. People in the South, again, outside of a layer of activists who who are interested in the North, most people don't want you to be involved in feuds. The rights and wrongs of the IRSP feud and the people who were killed and all the rest of it, I can't sit here and moralize in my mm. armchair, you know, um, and I wasn't there. Mm. But from a political point of view, that was disastrous for the officials in the South because it's quite clear that they're killing people. You know, um, there's a reason why when Seamus Costello was assassinated, nobody claims it, you know, because mm. you're just, you're, you're going to pretend you don't do things like that. Mm. And you actually do really stop doing them to a great extent. I mean, mm. They're shooting people in the 1980s, but they're kneecapping people and threatening people and so on. They're not, they're aware that, you know, this does come back to bite you in a lot of ways if you step over certain lines. Um, And I think they're, whereas the tension in Belfast was always that we must retaliate. We must be able to show that we're prepared to defend ourselves. Um, In the South, the tension is this stuff just alienates voters, gets us into trouble, drags us backwards not for moral reasons. It's not because Sean Garland and, and Goulding and, and O'Hagan and so on were were appalled by the prospect of shooting people, I don't think. It's that they realised that, you know, to, to build this kind of party we're talking about, um, generally people aren't aren't interested in that in the South. They're not interested in, in an armed kind of um, um, extension of your politics. Now, yeah. once you're internal and you're in the party and you're involved, it's a different kind of thing and certainly if you live in Belfast it's it's a very different um, um, thing but again there's so many the story of the conflict in the north and we've had the recent Unquiet Graves documentary mm. and revelations about collusion and, and the horrors that went on I mean to give you an example of why this is so um, you know complicated in, in June 1975 a leading member of the IRSP in Belfast Brendan McNamee was shot dead mm. and he was killed by the provost mm. and they didn't claim it either but they killed him I think because they were trying to stop defections mm. to the IRSP now people remember the officials trying to kill the IRSP but people have forgotten except for the IRSP themselves that in Derry for example lead members of the IRSP were tarred and feathered I believe that was Martin McGuinness authorised that because he didn't want to see them getting off the ground and so on. So Republican organisations, unfortunately, militarist organisations, try to crush opposition. Mm. Um, and the, the only way they know how to do it is to threaten you because they're armies, you know. Mm. Um, and the officials maintain that all the way through. And even in the 1990s, when they split again, mm. they tried to crush their opposition using mm. force, you know, in the, the ORM split. Mm. But ultimately... The wider public, the wider population, unless you're in a revolutionary situation, most people aren't in favour of people being shot or they're they're wary of it. You know, it's not even if they even if they're kind of in favour in the abstract, they don't particularly want it happening on their street. You know, so politically, the Workers' Party and I think Garland politically realised to build a party that we want in the South. Mm. And he was never going to abandon the North either, but Mm. the North was a different story. We've got to maintain this whole idea of we've left all that behind us and we're not involved in it. And we've we've got to control ourselves to the extent that we don't just go out mm. and 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 get caught doing these things, you know, which is why, you know, the, the famous Moscow letter um, special operations have become more difficult. You know, it's it's so give us money, please. And we won't have to rob banks. You know, right. 
And it's interesting you say there about like the South, because it looks then at that point, and the book I think underscores this in a sense, because you've got chapters which uh, switch between the North and the South, I think, in part anyway, this sense of you are almost got two parties developing, one in the South, in the 80s anyway, and then another in the North. Now, it's not that, obviously, they're linked, but what do you think Garland's view was of where things would go from your your research? Where did he see the, like, what was the optimal outcome for him? Well, I think there's there's two world there's there's two world views. I mean, there's one on the one hand, maybe people think we'll work away here, but ultimately, in global terms, socialism will be triumphant. So you know, we'll be part of a world in which the Soviet model becomes the norm. Hmm. And I think people did want to believe that because it's it's very, you know, comforting. You know, we've just been we've lost we've lost a, a council seat, or we you know. But at the same time, we've got a quarter of the globe or whatever or more that that calls itself socialist. And I think, you know, there's a genuine belief in that for some people. And then there's also a belief that in the 1980s, and again, this is, I suppose, my formative years, um, 40,000 people a year emigrating. Everything is closing. All I can remember is all these what would have been called traditional industries shutting every week. The Labour Party are in coalition with Fine Gael. It's pretty terrible. There's room for a, an alternative. Sinn Féin are trying to build that alternative, but the North, in many ways, is, is holding them back. You know, and um, The Workers' Party in 1985, poll hired and Labour in Dublin in the locals, I think, elections. Um, in 1987, in retrospect, a big missed opportunity. I think the Workers' Party and Labour thought that was going to be... Labour were going to be hammered. They were going to... Remember, Dick Spring was only re-elected by four votes or something. Um I think people thought the Workers' Party were going to make their breakthrough then and they were working towards that and they didn't really. They got four TDs, but they, you know, they could have got more. Mm. Um, and then in 89, they do make a bit of a breakthrough, but Labour recover, mm. you know. Mm. But I think there would have been thought, and people in the North as well have said, look, we knew things were pretty terrible here and really we weren't going to do anything. But the South gave us hope that this was going to snowball and maybe that would, would mm. benefit us too. But I think there was... There was always a confusion about what they were trying to do in the North because they'd attracted a different layer of, of people in the 1980s um, who, I'm wary of all the labels, you know, neo-unionist and so on, because the Workers' Party on paper believed in a United Ireland. and mm. You can't be a unionist if you believe in a United Ireland. Mm. But there were people who by the 1980s thought it was far more important to accommodate or understand unionism than it was to care at all about what was happening on the nationalist side and the more praise they got from unionists, they thought that was success. Mm. Whereas they weren't actually getting any votes from yeah. Protestant mm. voters, really aside from maybe one or two. Mm. And also they were just being losing, losing, losing in the nationalist areas. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't, there's this kind of on a, on a generous level, you say this naive view that if, Ken McGuinness says the Workers' Party are okay, that's a sign of success. When Ken McGuinness and the official Unionist Party are historically, you know, conservatives and so on, and why would a conservative want to praise a Marxist working class party? Yeah. You know, they're only praising you because it's a way of getting at the other lot. Mm. You know, to say that there's some good, there are some good people in the nationalist ghetto, you know, mm. and and because they're they, they're really nice to us. So they never really got to grips with that because you, they're, they did go from 
the kind of the 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 tone United Irishmen, Protestant, Catholic, and the centre mm. to a socialist Protestant and Catholic workers unite to by the late eighties get rid of Articles two and three. Yeah, let the unionists understand the unionists, and that really has you know it, it's got an intellectual purchase for a certain section of people, say in the south, but it's not anything that people on the ground in the north would be that interested in on either in either community. I think. Is it a surprise to you then when the split occurs in 1991? We were asking Colin Brannock that and he was saying it wasn't because he was part of it. But I mean, when when it occurs in your reading of it, was it an inevitability or was it something that was something that could have been avoided? I don't know if it could have been avoided because I suppose there's so many factors and I don't want to... I think Colin probably gives a good overview of it. Hmm. I mean, I think that the, the end of actually existing socialism was always going to be a huge factor and how they overcame that. Then they had a very public, the first kind of public split when Owen Harris and his supporters essentially left um, yeah. in 1990. Um, that was a major, you know, the, it, their monolithic image had certainly begun to, to crumble by then. Mm. And and I suppose, again, the funny thing was that given the importance he places on himself and also the way that people often hold Harris up as kind of the archetypical stick mm. most ordinary activists wouldn't have had a clue who he was by 1990 yeah, you know um, the media had to do features on him because most people just didn't know who yeah. on harris was um but it's hard to see how essentially people like Emin gilmore and pat rabbit and so on i think had decided that their future was in some kind of social democratic formation mm. and whether they could have turned the workers party into that um difficult to see yeah. people like sean garland genuinely were not going to go down that road so you know they did split and um again a very bitter split for the people involved mm. you know um and 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 one that it's always the case when you talk to people who've been involved in splits and so on it's the last one tends to be the bitterest so mm. remember mcgilla being quite sentimental about rory O'Brodick and about other people but despising francesca rossa mm. you know mm. Yeah, he said he'd shake Roy O'Brody's hand, no problem, but he'd never yeah. shake Dorota's hand. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't think it would have been avoided, really? Or, like, the reconstructed party would have been... I mean, that was Dorota's vision or what have you. And I guess Mcgiola would have been um, in a peculiar position because he's sort of seen as being potentially either camp, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, again, yeah, the the... McGilla people didn't quite know what way he was going to go and he was certainly very torn mm. and broken I think by the the way that the, the split happened and, and the uh, the big names the media names all went one way and a lot of the activists stayed with the WP and loads of people just left I think mm. the other factor was a lot of people just went away you know didn't didn't go anywhere so then like the story continues yeah, it does, apparently. Yeah. Um, they lose the seat. They lose McGill's seat then, subsequent to that. But they retain council seats. Yeah, I mean, McGill lost his seat, I think, in 1992 and tried again in the, the Dublin Midwest by-election in 96, whenever that was, when Joe Higgins kind of emerged as, as a likely uh, winner out there. And 
when we were writing the book, the Workers' Party were 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 still there, and I think Ted Tynan was a councillor down in Cork, and then no, they had a councillor in in Waterford, Waterford as well, and John yeah. Halligan was was a member, and then he left and later mm. became an independent TD, and then Ted Tynan was elected maybe in two thousand and nine, um, but they were largely they were they were there, but mm. to be fair, I don't think they claimed they were. Uh, much of a factor anywhere. Um, they still were in the north. They'd had a big split in the 90s, the, the official Republican movement split, which was significant too, mm. in terms of the people who left and, and what that reflected within the, mm. the party. Say by 2009, I was noticing that they're, they were beginning to emphasize the Republican aspect of their history a bit more. That's right, yeah. And I began to see you know, more of an emphasis on Easter and so on. Mm. Um, and it was interesting because when we were interviewing people initially in 2004, 2005, a lot of the leading WP people, um, even if their backgrounds went back to the 60s, um, were very uh, um, reluctant to talk about the official IRA and things like mm. that in, in the early 70s. So it was more like the official IRA was there, declared a ceasefire, and that was it. Yeah. You know, there was no talk about what the official IRA did and... Um, what it's, you know, not who did what, but like why it, it carried out particular things. And then after the last revolution came out in 2010, the Workers' Party published a pamphlet about the Falls curfew, which is actually a very good curfew because they interviewed um, quite a few people who were involved in it. Um, and I remember thinking, this is the first time in 40 years that the Workers' Party have actually embraced or even discussed that aspect of their history. Um, because we couldn't get people in the WP. The people who talked to us about the official IRA tended to people tended to be people who'd left at various points in the movement's history. Um, and WP people just tended to have that. There was an official IRA, it declared a ceasefire, and then it went away, and we that's what we wanted. Whereas now the pamphlet on the Falls curfew was obviously a Works Party pamphlet, but it was talking about the officials fighting the British Army, which was a... You know, something they hadn't talked about in an awful long time. Mm. And of course, in the years since, that aspect of their history has become fully embraced, I think, in some ways. What do you think the influence of The Last Revolution has been as a, as a publication, as a book? I couldn't tell you what influence it's had, you know, except in terms of a lot of people have said to me that they enjoyed it. Um, a lot of people from different political backgrounds have, have said that they, they liked it. Mm. Um Relatively few have been, you know, annoyed about it, mm. um, which is a good thing. Mm. It got really good reviews. I think Andreas Okasig reviewed it and Conor McCabe reviewed it, and they were really perceptive and enjoyable reviews. Um, Henry Patterson gave it a, a good critical review. I would say it was a critical Harrisite review in Irish mm. political studies. Um and I was delighted that it got a horrible review in the Sunday Independent. Um, <laughs> a guy, John Paul McCarthy, who was like a mini-me of Owen Harris for a while, gave it this skating review. And it was so hilarious because it was like, as someone said, you know, basically Owen Harris held his hand while he wrote the review. Um, and it was again in 2009 in the bang in the middle of the recession or the Sunday Independent in the same issue had photographs of union leaders' houses and how much the houses cost. And I just thought... I would not want a good review of you bastards, you know. Um, so in general, I think people liked it. Again, it could have been better, could have been even wider. You know, maybe people didn't, some people didn't get enough of a say. We tried to tell a story of of 
of a movement that encompassed a lot of different aspects of Irish life mm. and which was, was centrally linked to what was probably the biggest issue in Ireland in the last 50 years, which is the conflict in the North, mm. but which also then had a lot to say about class in the South mm. and about, like, we haven't even mentioned the unions really, haven't mm. even mentioned the, the tax campaign. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, one of my bugbears in terms of Irish history is that it's not that we ignore labour history because there's there's people who, who take labour history seriously. Mm. It's just that even people on the left know barely anything about the history of the Irish working class, you know, and about how in the 1960s we had the highest strike rate in, in yeah. Europe and, and unions were, I mean, 60% of the working population were in trade unions and that has changed drastically. But people aren't even really aware it's changed. Mm. It's just kind of, you know, um, it, it's just not discussed in the way that it probably should be in terms of, of how we look at history. So they were part of that story too and their mm. their view of the unions and the, the way it changed and the people who were involved in trade unionism in all different aspects of it, I think was 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 important. So we we did our best, basically. We did our best, I think. Mm. It's a huge story. It's very difficult to... Um, do you think it led to a reappraisal of their uh, history and legacy? I mean, I think... Or would you say there's more, like you said yourself, you gener- you yourself in the process of, you had a, a bit more empathy than you would have coming from a very critical position towards them. And so do you think that would be true of uh, subsequently people have been a bit more sympathetic? It wouldn't be quite the right words, but maybe understanding of the context and how they gener- they appeared in that context. I think for some people, yeah. I mean, I think, um, again, in... in Andrea Okasik's review, he kind of said that his view at the start would have been very negative. Mm. And at the end, I mean, the the uh, review was titled Decent Old Sticks. Um, yeah. And yeah. he'd kind of seen that actually, you know, there were a lot of people involved in this movement who, who were trying to do positive mm. things, but that the, you're, you're the product of your context as well. And, and, and you don't, you know, man makes history but not in the circumstances of his choosing or whatever yeah. um yeah. but i mean on the other hand another friend of mine um who'd, who'd be more of a who'd have been a Sinn Féin supporter he just was like i'd have more in common with Fine Gael than i would have with them you know um so of course there'd be people who'd, who'd still think these people were were terrible mm. either because they were stalinists or because they were unionists mm. or whatever mm. And also then people who would think, well, it's an interesting story, but really what relevance is it to be? They had seven TDs and one MEP. And, you know, why is, why didn't you write a book about Fianna Fáil? They were in power for 60 mm. years, you know. So I think that, look, I think people on the left and people involved in republicanism, I hope, got something from it. Mm. And I hope it wasn't too heavy handed in terms of, of me and Scott telling people, this is, you know, we, we tried to tell it as much as we could. We tried to back up as much as we could, which is kind of difficult with an oral history too. Mm. Again, I'm pretty amazed by how some people were so spot on and they would tell you something and it would seem, you know, unlikely. And you'd go back and check press reports and maybe even check um, party documents and stuff. And they'd be right about the date and they'd be right about the people. And, you know, it's funny how things stick in. Yeah. in people's minds you know um, and certainly again I suppose if you're involved in a particular thing mm. uh, it would do but um, I mean I think it's it's in many ways it's a tragic story there's a lot of people who who 
who lose their lives, um, a lot of people who are killed. Um, we obviously, we mentioned Seamus Costello, Liam Macmillan, mm. a lot of people who didn't need to die, who died in, in one thing that struck me, I suppose, and this is, this is why it's not the same as writing a book about people before profit or writing a book about even the Communist Party mm. um, in Ireland, anyway. Um, there was a document the officials brought out in the early 70s, an education document, and it was trying to convince their members why theory was important, mm. you know, why it's important to understand all these concepts. And it says, yeah. erroneous theory for us is not the same as that for a left faction. Their mistakes don't finish in a cemetery. And, you know, that's why they were different. Yeah, that's a very interesting note to end on. Thanks yeah. a million, Brian. That's really Thank you. Yeah, very thanks so much. Provoking. For-